0: Everybody to the honor Hacker podcast number 40. Um, tonight we have Max Klemmeyer from Dark Trace. And uh, before we get started, I'll go over some general housekeeping and, and uh, some updates. So right now DEF CON's going on. Um, so I don't know if anybody's uh, watching that or, or logged into it. Uh, I heard it's pretty good this year, even though it's like mostly virtual. Um, also, Coming up next month, September 28th, uh, I'll be in Dallas speaking at InnoTech uh, Dallas 2021 um, in Irving, Texas, just right outside of Dallas. Uh, So I think that'll be recorded as well. Um, Other than that, no real big news or updates. Um, I will be on a new podcast with uh, Holly, um, just a strictly offensive sec. Uh, podcast going over penetration testing and and tools and and stuff like that Uh, that starts uh, not this Sunday but next Sunday Um, so look out for that Um, and housekeeping I'm going to go ahead and turn off the chat and uh, send it directly to me so if you have questions go ahead and put it in the box and uh, I'll make sure it gets asked so with that being said welcome to number 40 and Max it is so good to see you man it's been a long time.
1: Likewise, Mike, really nice to see you. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, you and I met in uh, Cambridge uh, when I went out there for uh, to talk to you about Dark Trace and, and some of the stuff you guys were doing um, after I'd met with uh, Mike Beck. Uh, really good company. Um, I've dealt a lot with Dark Trace, deploying uh, you know, it all across the world that was really cool so why don't you give us a little bit of your background us where you came from and, and kind of your journey into where you're at now
1: absolutely um love to I think it's similar to many folks um, as you can tell I'm a millennial right in my mid-30s so I'm big into video gaming and that's important because I started a lot of computer stuff when I was like 10 11 got my first computer there from my parents and grew up with you know Duke Nukem 3D and all the good games back in the day. And those were my first touch points, I guess. Always been curious about computers and gaming and these kind of things. Still am today. Um, and then, probably likewise to some of our audience today, I met up with friends. We had LAN parties, you know, before the internet was a big thing. And we got together and plugged cables in, Ethernet cables, and put up the old routers and switches. And, to get these things going so you know lots of hands-on debugging troubleshooting as a young lad trying to get these things to work and then at some point you realize when you play counter strike with your friends and it looks like you're losing the game you can crash their windows xp computers so, you know nobody wins nobody loses the game is just gone and i guess like any curious young person you go from there and in the early 2000s the internet became big and you got good connections and then i dived into i dove into cracking scene for a bit you know video game cracks and serials and that kind of things and i slowly realized hey all this cool stuff that's kind of fun you know uh, can be done professionally for earning a living and i as many people didn't know what i wanted to do with my life when i was like 16 17 18 um so i looked at what i could do with my skills i'd acquired and all the fancy stuff joined julie packard established their german-based penetration testing consulting services, I didn't have it at the time, and then slowly worked my way up in the next few years to take over the threat and vulnerability management consulting for the whole of Central Europe, which concluded things and included things like red teaming, pen testing, ethical hacking, which I think is slightly different than pen testing, we can discuss later, um, and also the boring side sometimes of so corporate bits, like the big vulnerability management, how do you roll out a Qualys or a Nessus for like a million endpoints? Um, and you know manage the distributed architectures and all that kind of stuff for well, you consume the reports also the corporate side. and at some point in 2016 i felt like i was tre- treading in a hamster wheel you know when you you in filling the industry for quite a bit and i noticed well all this cool stuff right you go to black hat to defcon you find the latest offsec tools and pentest tools and you talk to your peers but you come in after you you've done a pentest a year later and you realize Well, the same vulnerabilities exist. Nothing has really changed. People do it just for compliance. And I didn't feel like having an impact with that side of the house. So I looked around for cool new things, cutting edge, what else is, you know, changing in cybersecurity, because I felt like we're losing the game, right? I mean, still now I sometimes feel that, like ransomware is everywhere, everybody gets hacked. But five, six years ago, it looked pretty grim. And that was around the time when FireEye got very big with the APT1 report, even before that. And there was a lot of focus on, you know, the profiling of advanced persistent threats and stuff like that. Um, and then I joined Trace. So I jumped over from the red side of things and the offset side of things to more of the blue side. We can see analysts there using, I know it's a big word, but artificial intelligence-based tech to have a smart way to catching the bad guys and bad girls. And dove into, you know, network traffic analysis, seeing APTs, hands-on um, from every country in every region, I guess, finding them live and just absolutely loving it, right? And trying to push the technology boundaries. So sorry for the long ramble, but I guess it started from being a young tech enthusiast to looking at the red teaming side of things and pen testing, getting a bit disillusioned from the bigger perspective, and then trying to look for something to move the needle and ended up with Darktrace, where I am still today. And I still use our solution every day and hunt for interesting activity and threats. But I also oversee our analyst team and act as a mentor and have the privilege to... Talk to a lot of big companies, Fortune 100, but also small shops to their security strategists, their CISOs, their stock leaders, their threat hunters, and just I'm super lucky and happy why I'm, you know, I've got such a nice privileged position to talk to folks like you on the call today, see the threat landscape, but also the background and the ability to mentor and get new people into the industry with um, draining from my experience.
0: That's very cool. Um, you know, I, I started off in, in pen testing and uh, just recently made the move over to uh, the blue team. Now I run a blue team. It's a different different mentality, but I think it's really important to know the offensive side in order to be effective on the blue team. Um, and I tell all of uh, my, my analysts, I actually have one online tonight, um, that, you know, you have to know the attacker and the tools in order to be able to effectively stop them. Um, so you and I had a really interesting conversation um, around the game Go. I don't know if anybody's heard of, of Go or uh, you know have played it before. But it's an ancient Chinese game, dates back something like 2,500 years. Um, actually, you know, there's there's debate on how old it truly is. Uh, I've seen I've seen it dated to 4,500 years. So it, it's very old game. It's very strategic. Um, and Google put together um, AlphaGo, um, which I found super interesting. And during the documentary, AlphaGo, um, they the world's best um, uh, Go players. And AlphaGo actually defeated uh, that player a couple times. Um, you know, it, it was pretty impressive. And I think, you know, AI in general is, you know, we're, we're, very, we're in the very early stages of the AI. Um, some things that, that people call AI is truly not AI, it's machine learning at best. Um, but you, know, you, you do see some, some breakthroughs with AI technology. And uh, you know, we, we had some conversations uh, around AI um, in Cambridge. So wh- why don't you touch on AI a little bit and tell us your viewpoint of AI, because I think that's really important to get that out to the audience.
2: Can, can I jump in for a second? Can you define what the difference between machine learning
1: and AI is just a, as a starting point? Yeah, I'd love to. That that would have been my first step. So thanks for that, Ryan. <laughs> and also, Mike, Um, Amy tells me that she can't speak or turn her camera on, but she did her hair. So she's, she's um, urging me to let you know to enable her camera, I suppose. <laughs> um, I guess I think it's Interesting thing about this, um, Ryan, when, you know, what's the difference between AI and machine learning? I would take it further and say, where does AI start? Where does it go into machine learning? Where does that blend into statistics, heuristics, or just maths? You know, it's it's a sliding scale. Um, I'm not a mathematician, but I've worked alongside um, maths PhD researchers in Cambridge with Darktrace for the last six years from my cyber perspective. I don't like the word AI because it's misleading, and I think it's overhyped and will lead us to another AI winter. You know, everybody like two or three years ago, I was super excited and said AI is the next big thing. When I say AI, I mean narrow AI, which means clever algorithms, mostly machine learning based, supervised, unsupervised, deep learning, reinforcement learning, curiosity learning to achieve certain defined goals. When I say it, I'm not talking about general AI, which is you know stuff from William Gibson and Neuromancer and all the good old cyberpunk movies and novels, um, which maybe we see in our lifetime, but who says that a consciousness, which general AI would or strong AI can even be replicated in silicon who says that's not hardwired to wetware so that's maybe a separate discussion but um, for me it's hard to say I personally say um, I call something AI when it's very sophisticated complex machine learning not just an algorithm but maybe you've got a system um, where you want to achieve a certain goal let's say you want to find anomalies in network traffic and instead of saying of oh, this magic algorithm that can do all of that you might have Forty or fifty different algorithms, unsupervised ones, and you've got a meta classifier on top that makes sure these classifiers below are balanced and the right ones are selected for the right problem. Um, and then you talk about combined machine learning in various forms to achieve a certain goal. So I would say, what is AI? It's a sub, yeah. It's it's a very loose definition. I'd rather talk about machine learning, but when it becomes very complex and interlinked, I sometimes like to call it narrow AI. So it, it's not the textbook definition, I guess, but that's what I like to think about it. Um, What gets me angry and upset is when I look around the the vendor landscape and the industry at the moment, and everybody says AI, right? Everything is AI-driven, (laughs) military-grade, powered, and it's just crazy. And I think that's bad because AI or machine learning, when applied correctly, and we may not forget that it's just an extension of computer science, right? It's not magic. It's just more clever algorithms for um, problems that are very human-driven, automating tedious human tasks which normally have like a cognitive input required and oh Mike sorry you have to stop me if I ramble too much right I don't want to talk all the time but I'm you can never ramble to too much hard. here man <laughs> okay awesome I'm, I'm super passionate about this so go ahead I, th- I think um AI can do a lot of things especially if applied correctly what I mean by this is I see it in practice almost every single day and I used to work in a traditional stock and I used to be sim consultant as well outside So I used to write all these use cases, you know, more than 50 megabytes, 10 minutes to this um, malicious IP address. And we know that never scales. But if you apply, for example, unsupervised machine learning to get context. So instead of saying more than 50 in 10 minutes to this malicious IP address, you just learn normal behavior using various unsupervised machine learning algorithms, anomaly detection, and say, well, if you see an unusual amount of traffic, no hard threshold in a weird period of time to a new or unusual destination on the internet, then throw detection, take an action, send an alert or something. So that is just one method to apply AI. And I think that's very clever, but yeah. most vendors, most um, folks in the industry use supervised machine learning, which uses predefined training data, which in essence is just better signatures. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and I'd love to talk about the, the Go aspects and intersections to video gaming there as well, Mike, because you just brought it Mike, up a minute ago. Mike, do you
3: mind if I ask a question? So my question is, if you have got machine learning, so the machine learning is happening, right? But if you, if in your network already there is a malicious person, the machine learning is learning from the malicious person, like kind of being in the network already. So do you know what I mean? Like so, the so the machine learning is learning the malicious behavior, right? So how do you counteract the the fact that there's a malicious person maybe already in the network? Like, what what can you do about that? Do you, like, I, I don't know if you know the answer, but like, what would you, what, what's the, what's the now? Yeah. yeah,
1: I love the question because, Amy, that's the one I carried into my interview going into Darktrace, the exact same question. <laughs> like, what do you do about this? I've seen that now countless times. Um, it's a data poisoning problem with the data set, right? In unsupervised machine learning, when you learn the environment live online, and something is bad already, you might learn it as normal. The same is true data poisoning if you have supervised machine learning. Sorry for the nitpicky differences here. Supervised means you've got a million images of um, dogs, a million images of cats, and you train a classifier machine learning system. And if it sees a new image, it knows based on the training data if it's a dog or a cat. Of course, you can poison that as well. To your point, um, it depends on how you you use your machine learning. So if Amy's computer is poisoned, you're already infected, you're beaconing out with your cobalt strike malleable implant every two and a half minutes to a malicious IP address.
3: Do you assume that like every machine or every environment is already poisoned? Or do you yeah, like I feel like for me that would be the the right way to go right.
1: Yeah that, that's it. You you don't assume anything is good, but you can still pick it out if if you if you're infected and you exhibit some weird behavior, but that's normal for you. You might always scan the network. You might always do crypto mining. You might always beacon out to a German IP. But compared, so compared to your own normal activity from day one, that's normal. So it wouldn't flag up. However, there's also automated peer grouping going on to similar devices and the overall environment. And compared to that, it normally still stands out. So I've seen a case um, of Charming kitten that is the Iranians, allegedly, in a um, government environment in the Middle East.
3: Can I ask you a question, Mike? So is the the whole reason why people from iranical kittens is it because they're persian and persians like cats is like the does that come from i don't know
1: i don't like the naming (laughs) convention i didn't choose that for myself (laughs) but probably yeah i like persian cats though but however that's an example where we did see them and one desktop was infected from day one so it was constantly beaconing out to their c2 address which was unknown at the time and it was this standing out because it was like super weird compared to every other device and its peers and the overall network. However, there's um, an interesting fact. Sometimes when the whole environment is burning, right? I've seen that where you've got two or three threat actors moving literally across the same environment at the same time, like everything is on fire. Then it gets more difficult. <laughs> but for for whatever reason, we mostly see that in Latin American environments, Indian environments, and sometimes Southern... Europe. So I'm not implying, you know, these environments have less cyber hygiene or are less secure, but that's just what the data show me over the years. But yeah, Charming Kitten, no idea. I like to call them APT35. I like to stay neutral.
0: <laughs> another, another good point, too, is um, when I was testing uh, certain platforms, um, one of the things I did was use attacks that um, were actual like Nordic, right? So PowerShell, you know, using port 80 or 443.
1: And that's exactly
0: that blending in the environment,
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what the best adversaries do anyway, right? If there's any red teamers among us, you will live off the land anyway. Use Lobin, you configure your malleable or your Empire PowerShell to blend in, use port 443 DNS tunneling or whatever. So that's happening anyway. And there's actually a plugin for Empire PowerShell called um, First Order that was written by, I think, a Turkish guy, and it lands on the Infected computer, the implant lands. It doesn't do any command and control beaconing. It just sits there, runs pcaps, does a statistic analysis of what kind of ports you're using normally to communicate out. It listens to <laughs> what kind of, you know, does it use, does that computer use certain user agents? Does it use .php, .jsp, .aspx websites, and then adjusts the implants beacon to that. So it's not just, you know, the good attackers do this themselves there's already tools to try to blend in luckily it's the guesswork right if you land on a single endpoint you can not just guess what's normal for that one you have to beacon out at some point and normally you still make a step in the wrong direction because you don't know what the rest of the environment looks like yeah,
0: that's a good point um another thing in the uh, AlphaGo movie um one one piece of uh, the clip that i really found amazing was when AlphaGo. Made a decision during the game that nobody predicted, um, and it was just a wild move, and everybody was shocked. And from that point on, it struggled. It seemed for like the next two games to find to find that rhythm to to be able to make those smart decisions again. Um, so, yeah, let's let's talk about how uh, how we use AI in gaming as well. Like I think that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, not just for AlphaGo. The example you mentioned is where AlphaGo had such a long vision, it took a momentarily defeat or some disadvantages, but it knew if it takes these, these hits right now in the long game, in the meta game, it would win. Right, so it created this strategy and sacrificed some short-term gains for that, and like I said, I'm a big video game nerd, so I love StarCraft 2, for example, I never played Dota, but it's big, and People have started applying the similar techniques that Google DeepMind used for AlphaGo to StarCraft 2 and to Dota. So they use reinforcement learning where you just let an agent play against itself or others millions or billions of times and figure out the best strategies. So it's not just Go where set a narrow set of you know, moves and a very well-defined reward function, but also super complex um, RTS games like StarCraft II. And we've seen the same thing you mentioned there. We've seen that the reinforcement learnings the the bots the ai that played starcraft 2 have invented new meta strategies and that is super fascinating because you know that's things does that mean it's getting creative i wouldn't go that far i don't think that's true i think it's just pointing out flaws in the system that are too difficult for a human to find
3: Um, max i'm patronizing at any point in this conversation but your english is fucking amazing like uh my german is in habe ich Video gemacht, I was forgetting. Uh that's literally the extent of my German, right? Like your German, your French, your English is so much better than, than my German. And it's honestly amazing to sit and listen to you talk. Like I'm so like, like the things that you're actually saying, like the, in terms of like the technological side of things that you're saying, like the the actual context of things that you're saying is brilliant. But I'm kind of sat here like amazed that you're saying this in a new language as well like it's so cool yeah, so thank you. thank you thank you so much for being here it's amazing
1: no thank you that that puts a big smile on my face as you can see it learn nederlands <laughs> i'm also learning dutch at the moment because we live here now but that's much harder as like, my wife yeah,
3: like, i see i think i speak french spanish romanian german um but like as a in french i could maybe have the kind of conversation you're having but not literally not not until it's technological like the technology the technology kind of um you use as well no chance like i'd be like (laughs) what the fuck (laughs) um so no it's um it's actually amazing listening to you like just listening to the things that you're saying are really cool ryan likes minting it
2: Um, i love it can we go back to the thing you're talking about starcraft that you've it's not
1: creative, but just uh, too complex for humans to figure out. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, um, I've looked into this quite a lot. So that's using reinforcement learning, and they've actually yeah. used they use Alpha Star—that's what it's called—to play against the ladder. So human players, that don't know, they're playing this AI. Yeah. Um, there's some criticism looking at the actual stats of what the system does. So when it first came out, it did things that looked like new matters, strategies that no one could envision, and it won. Yeah. Now, looking at this more closely and You know, that's just some research pointing to the other direction. It looks like it's using its AI abilities, so bursts of APMs, actions per minute, where it's using super fast, you know, um, typing skills in situations where it would be too complex for a human to do. So they try to cap and apply limits to what the AI can do based on it can't use every API. It has to just have a field of vision. There's a slowment of the camera speed, it can only go to certain peaks of actions per minute. To try to make it similar to a human in terms of limitations, but yep. it looks like it's gaining that system by st- staying in these limitations but applying the bursts and the fast things when a human couldn't do it when yep. situations are just too stressful. So yep. I find that super fascinating still because even if it's not creative, if I make the leap to cyber security, isn't hacking just a kind of gaming exactly? Yeah, right, because you have. If you have an input system, you might have a computer if you want to escalate your privileges. You have your terminal, you can throw loads of things at it. You can use certain commandlets. You can throw a PowerShell. You can um, create files, you can run programs. It's a set of input parameters. Your reward is you want to escalate privileges, get to a certain user stage, um, and then just try out what works, right? So you could train the system on that. Or you could say you can expand the game and you can say the overall network is the game right? In AlphaGo, you have to um, have certain moves. You win if you beat your opponent and score points and you lose points um, if you if you lose your stones. So in a network, if you start on a system, the reward function is get to that server, move laterally, and the quicker you are, the less you get detected, the more points you score, right? Yeah. And then you can just train the system, train, train, train again. That's, that's very simplified and there's huge problems with the reward functions, but Microsoft just released something called, um, I think, Cyber Battlesim and put out a lot of research where they provide this this sandbox, this um, minimized, this um, dumped down version of network and open-source that and said, go and try and play and do things. And if I combine this open-source stuff and the idea that you know hacking is just a big game, looking at what the nations do, China is investing billions into the intersection of AI, military, and um, cyber. So that all points in that direction and there's open source research happening. I know what we can do with, you know, a little bit of AI in the blue team world, a dark trace, for example. And that's why I love discussing these things because they might not be relevant now. There's no big AI-powered cyber attacks taking over the world. But I think that's the next paradigm shift in 2, um, three, uh, five, 10, 15 years. I'm
3: so glad that as a person from Dark Trace, that I, I was on a panel with um, Andrew Sanjeev. The other week. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. And I was, yeah, and I'm so glad that you like, both of you guys have both said that AI is not like, like, not it's not a thing because it is a thing, but you know what I mean? Like, you said, you, you, everyone always thinks, like, oh, Dark Trace thinks AI is like the next big, huge thing. And I'm, everyone I've talked to from Dark Trace doesn't think that. They're always like, yeah, no, like, well, like, basically what you've said, like, it's a, you know, it's a, an emerging technology and we're getting there and you guys are using it but it's um yeah it's a it's like a stepping stone do you know what i mean like that yeah i'm I'm, I'm glad that you kind of um ratified that uh situation
1: you have to be realistic there's always the marketing side right but i think amongst techies and hands-on practitioners you have to be realistic and it's super powerful don't get me wrong but there's always hyperbole in, in every cycle in the industry let's put it this way
0: Yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people don't know the the algorithm that's actually behind uh, the machine learning and AI, the Bayes algorithm. And trying to explain Bayes algorithm to a lot of people is is mind-numbing. Um, so why don't you explain to us, you know, the 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 real logistics behind Bayes algorithm?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's um, get tech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let's see how far I can go. And it's not just the base bits. I think it's. As I tried to hint at earlier, the combination of various machine learning technologies in conjunction and what I mean by this is it starts with what kind of features you look at. Let's say I want to identify encrypted command control traffic, just as an example that's a very different problem to identifying a new network scan. Or to identify data exfiltration, or to find um, an unusual login that's all different problems because you've got different data and different feature sets. The trick is to look at all the different features, be they atomic, right? It's a connection, that's just a thing that happens. Be they aggregates, 50 megabytes in 10 minutes, or be they indirect, like a server reboot, which you don't see on the wire, but you can infer from DHCP lease, or, you know, system going down for a minute, coming back. So the trick is to look at all the available features and push them through any available algorithm, could be a k-nearest neighbor, could be random tree forest, and that's what I mean. These algorithms are like tools, right? One is good for identifying a network scan, one is good for identifying data transfer or something. And then comes the Bayesian part, where you try to balance the strengths and weaknesses. And now comes the part I never thought would be relevant, but it's almost the most relevant bit make it easy for the user to consume. There are so many systems out there where you just present it as a, an analyst with a big table giving you some numbers and some static, um, some cryptic strings and you can't really digest it if you don't have 20 years of experience in cyber. So talking tech, I guess, Ryan, I'm trying to bring it back to tech a bit. It's about looking at all those features and then putting them together and getting scores. So for example, every time Darktrace sees a connection for anything, anywhere down to the application layer, we can say this is an unusual HTTP POST request for Brian's device at this time um, in this context. And not by putting this in manually, but for every single connection. And then we can go to the next abstraction layer and say, well, Ryan's device had an unusual activity score 50% for external connections at this point in time.
3: Can I, can I ask how you so, I don't want to be a dick at any point, but how does that compare with what Microsoft is doing with um, Azure Identity Protection? I, I oh, what's it called? No, it's not called it Azure Identity Protection. Um, Azure... YouTube called ATA. Do you know which products you mean they've got they've got a product that like looks at kind of how behavioral. It's basically a behavioral analysis product, right? So how does yeah. that compare with Darktrace? Like, it, I'm guessing it's a similar thing. And I'm now I used to be a Microsoft fan girl. I've now worked for companies that aren't microsoft uh like are against not, not against microsoft but yeah like not microsoft not microsoft based right mm-hmm. so i'm totally cool with being not a microsoft Angular but i'm just interested to, uh, atp as it go as atp how does that how does it how does it compare against azure atp I'm, yeah. ju- I'm just interested to kind of understand like the the comparison between that.
1: yeah and ryan i will come back to you in a second on the on the other stuff but let's uh, talk about amy's bit first um first i find the naming Always very confusing, because like you said, now there's ATP Defender for Endpoint and ATP Defender for email. Defender for
3: Identities, that's the one it's called. That's it, yeah, exactly.
1: So I don't want to do it injustice. I know Microsoft is getting better at using machine learning. I know they use some supervised machine learning. I don't know how much that is true for this product you're mentioning, Azure Identity Defender. I think it's a big difference depending on if you use unsupervised machine learning, which learns on the job, doesn't have training data, uses the context from where it sees it. Or you've got training data, which is still quite generic. So that's a difference because I know they use like most people in the industry supervised machine learning, which is better than nothing, better than static signatures, but still based on you know previous attacks. Mm-hmm. They have improved and they have detections, for example, in Azure for unusual logins. So not mm-hmm. static, not saying this is a login from Nigeria, therefore bad, but saying that's an unusual login for Amy. And you can take that and use it for other detections, but I think it doesn't go further. And that's what I was trying to get at. So they they have a spot detection where they use some ML. But the difference to Darktrace is that it's all based on that unusual activity. So it's not just you know a detection or a metric, but you can literally say, I want to find a user that makes an unusual data transfer at a weird time on a weekend from a server yeah. and click it together. So I think they're getting, they're moving towards what we do, but we are much more holistic in what we're doing there. If that makes sense.
3: Yeah, I I guess maybe because you guys only focus on what you guys do, then yeah, that makes it easier for you guys to kind of hone in on that.
1: And I think here's a good example of how it's different. Um, It almost feels like it's hardwired for Microsoft for that um, login detection. They use ML for that login detection, that anomaly login detection. We've expanded, we are known for doing this anomaly detection on the um, network, but we do the same approach that self-learning on SAS data now, so we can say that's a weird activity for your Teams account, you know, and why do you share this, or for AWS on the control plane, why do you log in from a weird location, then access these five files, which you never access, and then you share an S3 bucket with the world, which you never do. Yeah, so, so
3: for the people who are not um, technologically savvy, it'd be like me logging in normally from my iPhone account and then suddenly logging in from an Android, right? That's the, that's the kind of things that you guys pick up.
1: Exactly. And that leap to other data sources and applying that the same kind of ML to just anything basically that's data or for emails. I think that's that's the difference at the moment.
3: Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much.
1: Now it's a really so you're much talking much. about those, those abstraction
2: layer, that uh, second abstraction layer? Can we back off from
1: there? Yeah, exactly. So for every single connection that is done at any time, it's being classified and said that's unusual or normal, maybe 1%, 10%, 100%. Then you got the abstraction layer on top where you aggregate those things and say um, maybe to, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 buckets. That's 15% unusual internal connectivity. That's unusual SMB write activity. That's 20% unusual SMB delete activity. And these things are exposed to the analyst in the front end. So you can create a detection where you literally say, um, take an action or create a detection when you see a 30% unusual SMB activity coupled with a new connection to a .ru domain um, at an unusual time. And that is literally like clicking the thing together. And that's it. I mean, we deliver this out of the box anyway. But that makes an analyst job so easy, right? Because all of a sudden, you don't spend 90% of your time detection engineering and trying to verify the rules. You just put it in and then you can start hunting and investigating. So the interesting bit is the the classifier coming in all the time. And it's not just that you can say, show me if it's 30% unusual. You can also say if it's an unusual SMB write to a service control pipe, or it's a new connection. So something I love to use and I found one or two APTs with is unusual SMB drive write. When a device makes a new connection to an SMB share on a device it never talks to normally, or it's unusual for it, unusual defined on the machine learning, and it goes to a hidden share, so dollar share, and it writes a .bat file or .exe file or any ELF really, and that is super interesting because normally you try to find certain file extensions. You know, I look for every .bat file, and I got hundred thousand. Results and then I have to do pivoting and dig through the data, fuck that. So instead of <laughs> just saying, alert me every time it's weird or unusual for this environment. And that is um, how we found um, the China chopper web shell in the Hefnium attacks. So we saw the exchange server zero days in December last year, three and a half months before it became public knowledge. We didn't know it was Hafnium, we just saw a East Asian customer of ours, a big um, national infrastructure, the exchange server all of a sudden, fully patched, internet facing, started scanning the internal network. Dr. said this server never scans the internal network on port 18, and 445. And then it made unusual and new SMB writes to other exchange servers and the Active Directory, writing bad files and a file called 64.exe. Doesn't mm. make any sense. So, you yeah. know, finding the needle in the haystack is what's the interesting bit here, down to the application layer. All right. Yeah. I think cool. the, yeah. uh,
0: The advanced search in dark trace is one of my favorite features. Um, You know, I didn't look at the the UI very much. Um, I actually went into like the, the, you know, the searching strings and looking at the actual data itself. And I think that's really important. So a lot of the analysts that I had um, when I was working with dark trace, they they would look at the UI and try to make sense of, of what they were seeing as far as, you know, the messages that would pop up. I don't like calling them alerts because they're not truly like alerts alerts. Um, but the advanced data and the advanced searching was phenomenal. Um, so, what at what point did they decide to put the UI on top of it? Because just with the just with the uh, advanced search, it was a powerful engine.
1: Yeah, that is such a good point. I was trying to work my way up from Ryan's question. So the, the clever bits is, you know, what's happening in the back end, all this on um, the classification saying this is new and unusual, but that is only my, maybe 20 or 30% of a working system. What is super important is making this as usable and easy as possible, almost for non-cyber people, right? And this is where what you just said, Mike, comes in, how to design a system, a UI, that gives you all the tools as an analyst. And that could be, like you say, advanced search, which is similar to the Elk stack we have in place, Elastic Stack, Logs-Kibana, not quite the same, but very similar. So when Darkfire says, this is Ryan's device, making a super weird SMB write and at the same time beaconing with unusual JAR3 hashes to a new Russian domain, you can literally grab a PCAP straight away for all of that with a single click. Or you can say, okay, give me a table view and I want to write queries in the Apache Lucene open source query language and just... Say, show me any device that goes to that domain, and show me any device that uses this jar free hash in this time range. Now combine the two, and then you can go hunting if you want. So we can work your way down again from the high level detection all the way to, you know, if you like table based views, do that. Or I'm, and this is where your question comes in, Mike. Why did we put the other UI back on top? So if folks haven't seen our UI, it's super visual. Some people like it, some people hate it. but the clever bits in the UI is that you can also visualize things in 2D. So I can literally pull a graph up for that detection and say, show me the external data transfers at the time on that device and overlay Kerberos logins or maybe DNS TXT records. So I can visually analyze what I'm seeing super quickly from a visual thinker, or I can start colorizing the event logs. So instead of having that advanced search view that you just mentioned, Mike, where it's you know classic table-based view and you can write queries, I can have a full history of connections on that device at the time in question, colorized by destination port, rarity, or whatever. So if you're a visual thinker, that's super powerful. And that's the reason why. And again, I don't want to guide the conversation too much, but (laughs) a lot of the people we hire have super diverse backgrounds and have no IT or security background at all, the junior analysts. And I think that is part of the scale gap problem. Or people say we've got a scale gap. I think we've got a tool problem in the industry. A hiring in the tool problem. What I mean by this is, of course, if you want to start the industry and you get a sim system that is just tables and just says you this Kerberos event four three five and this is file hash ABC and this is PowerShell command CDE. Of course, you need lots of experience and have to grind your way up through SOC. So I think personally that the tools have to get much better and much more explanatory, much more supporting. Instead of having to train up people, I get mad when I hear people say, I want to start training my kids in kindergarten to be cyber aware and become the best analysts." I'm like, no, <laughs> I want them to think about becoming astronauts or doctors or, you know, solve cancer, not about learning a query language for a cyber tool. That doesn't make any sense.
0: Exactly. And, uh, you know, we, we use Carbon Black uh, where I work and it's it's pretty interesting as well, but I remember back in 2005 um, when I first got into ArcSight, I think it was 2005 or six. Um, ArcSight was pretty interesting back in the day when it first came to the scene, uh, the ability to write buckets and, and build queries. And, and you know, it, it kind of laid the framework for what we're seeing now, the, the move towards machine learning and, and the move towards AI. Um, what do you think in comparison when you take a, a product like ArcSight and then you take something like Darktrace and compare you know, where, where Darktrace is now and where ArcSight was back in 2005?
1: Wow, so much to compare, I guess, um, especially <laughs> because I learned on ArcSight as a consultant in 2009. So got hands-on experience in PTSD, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's two main things I wanna compare. One is the position in the security stack. So for the longest time, anytime somebody says I wanna build a SOC, they think SIM because it's the long, the, the trodden way that people have, right? I think these days we know we've got the triad, you can use an EDR, you can use a SIM, or, and or you can use an NDR tool. Better to be said, which one of these is your leading tool and the others are supporting. So when you ask what's the difference between ArcSight 2005 and Darktrace today, um, it is the position in the security stack, but more so the smart analytics. And by that, I mean, of course, all the machine learning and the visualization and lowering the barrier to entry. And I want to um, I
3: also ask if you call it a seam. I call it seam. S-I-E-M. But do you call it a SIEM or SIM? Like, so I never
1: know. I used to but say Mike, SIM. What do
3: you call it? Wait, what do you say? Seam or SIM?
1: I used to say seam in Germany, um, but then everybody said SIM. So I just go with whatever the host or the person I talk to says. I, and they I, I call it seam <laughs> the
3: because I speak German. So I'm always like, well, the, so the second vowel means yeah like so the the one that right so it's always seem to me but i don't know exactly. ryan mike what do you say seem or sim
0: Jim. sim
3: <laughs> you're both wrong you're both wrong it's seem. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I work with a lot of american clients so they'll say sim so that's the that's where i go
3: no you're both wrong sorry <laughs> Max, Wait, Max. Said no. that's, Max
2: that's not unusual that's not unusual
3: mike Max, Max said no so you know we, we've got it we've got the official we've got the official answer now
1: i'm i'm just a guest here so i stick to whatever you guys say we see <laughs> but i guess um and again um mike and ryan you stop me if i ramble too much but i, oh, no, I think, no
0: no no go ahead
1: awesome um i think it what you just asked shows a very good prop a very important problem in the industry mike if I compare ArcSight from 2005 to Darkface today or any system today, I would say the difference is usability in every aspect. How easy is it to deploy? How easy is it to maintain? How easy is it to consume? All these things. And I think, um, again, we're trying to push the boundaries. If we put something into the product. Um, Mike, you might not even know this because you know we talked a few uh, months back. We call the AI analyst. So I think it's all great if you can detect really cool stuff. I think detections are getting commoditized though. So we try to put something in place that makes it even easier to find bad stuff if you literally have only five minutes a day. And what we did is we have a Chrome plugin at Darktrace and every single one of our analysts when they use Darktrace um, has data collected on how they use our system with their consent anonymized. What that means is if Mike investigates network scan, we measure quantitatively how we do this. Do you first look at the source device that does the scanning? Maybe if Ryan has a different method or workflow, maybe Ryan looks at the, grabs a PCAP first. Maybe Amy looks at the destination device first. Maybe I run a query to get a statics overview of all the ports being touched, right? Everybody has different hypotheses and the analyst workflow. So we literally measured that for three and a half years across hundred people and use these, I don't want to say intuition, but these workflows that people have in their minds and put it back into the system. So every time we have a detection, right, unusual data transfer, potential ledger movement, quantum control traffic, that triggers the AI analyst to replicate these playbooks. And I'm very bullish on saying it's not statically defined playbooks like in a saw because they don't just take an input and take an output. The detection triggers the AI analyst, and then it gathers data like a human would, based on whatever the context is—not statically defined, but you know, depending on what the situation looks like—pushes the data it gets back, the queries. Into classifiers that have been trained on our humans' output to say, well, a human would say from the data it has gathered, that looks like an actual attack, not just some weird anomaly, and then only presents these things in a kill chain view. So instead of saying there's a data transfer and here's some scanning happening, it tries to not show you detections, but incidents. And I think that's. Um, Maybe I'm straying a bit from your question, but I think that's the next level we have to get to. It
3: it it collates, so so basically I think what you're saying is like it collates lots of different events into one instance. It's like, I mean, I come from a Microsoft background, so my my background is selling Microsoft products, um, and Sentinel does kind of the same thing. I don't know whether it does exactly the same thing, but it's like if you've got, I don't know, um, if you've got someone sending out loads of, um, loads of emails, and then suddenly there's some kind of um. I can't remember what the it is now. There's With the AI of-
0: analysts, it's a little different. The AI analyst is actually looking at how the analyst addresses uh, an investigation or collects information based on you know an alert or or a target. So I, I kind of see the the AI analyst as being a good way to like say your soft ones or or your level one uh, tier could actually. Take over that that tier. Um, I, of course, you will need the creativity of, of you know the human to actually look at the problem and, and address the AI analysts. But I see that like that's a huge breakthrough. That, that place of entry level analysts. It'll be amazing, absolutely amazing.
3: Do you guys think that like AI analysts are going to be like the new sock analysts in terms of job? Like is that gonna be like the new thing? Like like sock analyst, everyone wants to be a everyone wants to be a pen tester huh? or a CISO or a sock analyst. So do you <laughs> think that like AI analyst, is that gonna be the new thing that everyone wants to be? Do you think?
2: I think it, I think it would just open up the whole t uh, sock. No. It, it would create the, the tier sock where you don't have this sock level one, sock level two, sock le- it would it would That's a- get rid of the the, the Alert fatigue and just exactly. help people con- concentrate on actual issues rather than filtering through a thousand things to find out what's actual but, but, something they need to my action. My
3: aim is that what you see that the job is is the job is the the job of the AI analyst is to like yeah, AI is a they job. Say, like a kind of um, like rationalise. I think um, oh, looks like we lost Amy.
1: I think it makes so. To your point mike i think you're spot on if i think about the problems we have in the industry it's not finding evil it is surfacing that to the right human eyes and the right human eyes mm-hmm. need to be able to escalate it in action and i think that's where the ai analyst comes in and i know amy mentioned microsoft but i still think that's a crowd-funded or crowdsourced saw where they show you what alerts happened around the same time but like you said mike we automate the investigation process and that's a huge difference leading to what ryan just said and we see this with customers it's not it's not a silver bullet, right? Nothing is. But it yeah, really yeah, helps bullet. it really helps to automate the level one and level two sock tasks. So you can literally log in five minutes a day or use a mobile app and you see, you know, these are the top two or three things that happened. And because it uses natural language and it's all pre-filtered and super visual, it doesn't need a cyber analyst. Literally, I've got network engineers and help desk engineers using this thing, finding APT attacks live, not knowing it's charming kitten or whatever, but knowing this is bad need to stop. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing, like just the idea of, of turning that, that entry-level position and, and that, you know, digging through alerts all day long, turning that into more of a, you know, automated process so that people can focus on real problems. Um, I, I see a lot of problem in the industry right now with um, bringing in multiple tools, right, multiple platforms into an environment, and you're looking at multiple different interfaces and you know, the way that they present data is completely different. So you look at that analyst, that, that level one analyst, and they have a lot to learn. And the burnout just with that, that position is pretty high. Um, you know, I, I deal with that quite a bit and, and talk to people that are on the tier one. And uh, you know, when you have 10,000 alerts that you have to investigate, and, you know, if you had something like AI analysts to take that that role, people could, you know, train up, they, they could actually get more experience in, in other, I guess, forensics and, and stuff like that. Um, I didn't know that you guys had that. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. It's pretty fucking amazing. Yeah,
1: that's pretty cool. It's it's really cool. And we snuck it into the product maybe one and a half years ago, but it's, it's not a separate product you have to purchase. So just part of the detect stack. And I think that's why it didn't get the attention it deserved as a big splash. But exactly what you say, it helps us. A, it re- Sorry, gone. Go
0: ahead. Go ahead.
1: It, it, re- go ahead. It, it reduced the triage time to find incidents by, I think, something silly like 92%. So it's a wow. huge time save, literally. Um, and it helps with burnout because, like Ryan said, it empowers the analysts. So instead of just churning 10,000 alerts, they get presented with an interesting lead that is pre-chewed already, right? Gives you everything. But then you also the tools I discussed earlier, the visualization, 2D, 3D, you can dig into it, you can grab PCAPs. So it's um, engaging work, meaningful work, at, at least more meaningful than running the same playbook 10,000 times a day. And that's, I guess, why we can hire from diverse backgrounds. So some of my best analysts are literally, one is an astrophysicist by a trade, one is a linguist and, um, the other one is a former teacher. And we took them in, and they're super smart young people, no IT background, but you know we put some experienced folks like myself next to them. There's no barriers, and we literally like, okay, use the system, shadow me, reverse shadowing, and ask me many, many questions. And then you do the same thing with yeah. another expert. And after a few months, again, they found their own novel ransomware attacks, their zero days and whatever. They might not know it's a zero day, and we might not know, but we know it's a bad campaign. Something big is happening, and we can follow up. That's
0: really That's cool. cool. One of the questions that we had, um, what are the best methods in your experience to attack machine learning models in a red team engagement? What, yeah, what, sure would, you say the, what would you say the weakness is when it comes to you know AI or, or near AI machine learning?
1: Um, again, awesome question. I love this discussion so much. I'm so glad I'm here today. So thank you again, folks. This, this has been amazing no worries, so man. far. It's super cool. Um, it's, so I take one step back. And decompose your question, because um, maybe not everybody in the audience knows how machine learning systems are set up and all that kind of stuff. So when you use a system that uses machine learning, you've got the traditional attack surface, you know, your your, um, your bugs, your uh, everything in OWASP, if it's a web application, maybe your buffer overflows. And then you've got the additional attack surface that comes from using ML systems. Um, I actually worked with a think tank, an international think tank, where we just put a paper out just about this a few months ago. Or we can link the show notes or something about the attack surface for machine learning systems, which discuss this in detail. But the interesting bit is the, the attack surface that comes with the machine learning aspects is things like data poisoning that I mentioned earlier, yep. or um, the, the stunt hacking, which we've seen in self-driving cars. You put a sticker on a stop shield and it doesn't recognize it or fooling facial recognition or computer vision. And there's various different ways. I still think personally, most of that is stunt hacking, trying to go against the ML surface, because in most cases, it's much easier to use the traditional attack surface. You're much more likely to find a buffer overflow or just a, a standard password or hard creds than to try to poison the data set in the training system of the vendor and hope to create a neural network backdoor. Yes, you can do it, but you know the rest of the other side of the house is much easier, much lower cost, and we all know attackers go after the highest ROI. Um, yeah. But it's, it's a fascinating topic because it does become more important—not just in cyber, but in critical systems. Right when we talk about healthcare, how do you secure a machine learning supply chain, and all the kind of stuff—it's it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the things that, that I was trying to. Um... Pursue when I was working in oil and gas when I first deployed Darktrace. Uh, One of the first things I did was try to go after the platform itself to see where where I could find the holes or the gaps. Um, And really there there weren't many. Uh, What I did find though is, is, like I said before, hiding in in plain sight, right? You know, using a PowerShell and, and, you know, actually going out and getting a script and then, you know, executing it within the system. Um, AI has a hard time picking that up because of the fact that, like you said, you know, if it's, if it's normal across that group of machines and that network to use that type of tool or to carry out that function, it's really easy to hide in the, in the details. Um, but I think it's, I think we're coming along really well uh, when it comes to AI. Uh, I think, you know, probably within the next couple of years, maybe five years, we should be, in my opinion, I think we should be at a true form of AI. Uh, we're starting to see a a lot more of that type of uh, technology being developed a lot more focus in that field Um, what do do you think as far as you know when we'll get to that true that true ai level
1: Um, maybe first to your point about the powershell and hiding in plain sight Um, i think that's that's awesome right that's what we want and in the best spirit of the mitra tech framework and anybody who's done detection stuff you're never going to assume you can catch everything but you want to catch something be it in the early stages of the attack early reconnaissance when the implant lands when the c2 happens when you start to move laterally maybe you catch it late but then you can pivot back and know what's happening so i think it's about this almost like defense in depth within a system across the kill chain and try to catch it at any point but true ai what well what is true ai right again that's (laughs) um i don't I don't know, just personally speaking, I don't think I'm going to see general AI in my lifetime. I think we're too far off. We don't even understand what a consciousness really is um, or where it comes from. And I think there's a lot of groundwork we need to do first. I think we're getting to some very complex, interesting systems though in, in IT. And we can see some of the next steps happening, especially I think with reinforcement learning, we've touched on some of that earlier. Curiosity learning, I find super interesting where you give a system a task, and it, its reward is trying new things out, right? So that's how some of the systems learn how to play Mario because it wants to learn new things or experience new screens for a longer period of time. When it does, it gets back and sees the same screens again. So it's incentivized, between new things. So that's hmm. really cool stuff happening, which we don't even know how to apply to cyber or life sciences or something. Um, I do think though there's a lot of movement being made. So we talked a lot about, you know, the AI analysts and detections. Something that's also pretty cool that um, a lot of customers use these days is stopping attacks why they happen, responding to them. And I don't mean preventative, like trying to predict where the attack comes from and put a rule in place. But when something happens, respond to it on the fly autonomously, based on the situation. And the trick. And that is restoring normal, so not self-healing quite, but we call it autonomous response, so coming back to normal behavior. So what we see in the Casilla ransomware attack, we saw that, for example, the supply chain attack that came through. I saw that live on The Wire. We've got a blog post about that. But we have customers who have this autonomous response in place that integrates with firewalls or sends TCP resets or goes to EDRs and takes action. But the clever bit is when it sees something that looks like a big cyber attack, it says, okay, whatever that system normally does, it can continue doing, but everything outside that's unusual, trying to encrypt every network share, trying to exfiltrate two terabytes of data, that stuff is going to be interrupted for one hour, 24 hours, whatever. And that is crazy powerful because it allows to stop novel ransomware campaigns, zero days and things like that without interrupting the business. So again, I hijacked right. your question with there about novel or true AI. I think if we talk about general AI, it's far off, but with the example of autonomous AI, I think we're getting a lot of bidding blocks together right now. And then it's about orchestrating those and you know putting them to good use. So how far are we off? I truly think we do some awesome stuff at Darktrace and some others. So I think in some sense, we're already living this world. Sometimes I feel like I, I work in a um, cyberpunk novel in Shadowrun or something with <laughs> folks like you know Phineas Fisher kicking around or a hacking yeah, team yeah. and then using AI and everything. It's just a crazy world out there. So I think some of the things are reality and folks don't realize it. Um, but yeah, I, I stop rambling here for a second.
2: What, what about an adversarial yeah. use of machine learning? Do you come across that much, or
1: yeah, I wanted to keep on rambling and go into that next. Again, <laughs> okay, thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> go man, <laughs> go, go. <laughs> um, so again, something we think about a lot. Um, I I'd love to differentiate, that again, for me, there's two things. There's adversarial AI. Which is using ai to hack ai systems use ai to attack the yeah. attack surface of an ml system that is ml that is yeah. like the fooling facial recognition stuff like that the stun hacking. that's happening i don't think that's majorly interesting though because it's you know breaking the system and you can mostly do that with normal software yeah. vulnerabilities anyway the other bit which maybe you hinted at i, I found more interesting is the offensive applications of ai so how to automate pen testing, how to automate malware, how to make malware smarter, stuff like that. And while I think, I think it's, that's the next big paradigm shift I tried to hint at earlier, not the autonomous, you know, a reinforcement learning agent that can hack the world, but there's actually tools out there at the moment, open source research for every step in the attack lifecycle to automate it using AI. As an example, there's a tool out there, a prototype called snap R, snap underscore R, from 2016, I think, that's an, um, a spear phishing tool for Twitter that some researchers put out. What it does is you point it at, um, I think, targets and it automatically understands what these folks tweet about, the topics they talk about, the um, sentiment, and it tries to create spear phishing tweets with maybe malicious link in there based on the context of the folks and what they talk about. So instead of you know creating spear phishing emails or spear phishing tweets myself, I can just take SnapR or something similar I create and have it do it for me. It just do the job 95% as well as I do, but it does it 99% faster. So instead of attacking five people a day, I can attack 5,000. And that's where I think really scary, I think, because when we talk about scaling up and lowering the barrier to entry for the bad guys and girls and other things as well, I think that discussion is often focused, that offensive AI discussion is often focused on how to get malware into the, sorry, how to get AI into the malware. I think that's a very narrow perspective, not the most interesting one. Another example, if we look at the, the last phase of many attacks, when data is exfiltrated, we see a lot of ransomware attacks that don't just exfiltrate gigabytes anymore, but terabytes of data, like everything they find. And that's also one of the differentiators in the ransomware market, the speed of exfiltration, that's what they advertise about, interestingly. But what I'm trying to get at is, um, if you've ever run offensive operations all the way through, and you also analyze the data trophy took away, of course, you can just say, we've got your data. We're going to smash you in the face if you don't pay the ransom. But what you normally, do, if you're a good attacker or a nation-state attacker, you sift through that data. You try to look for the military blueprints. You look for compromising material. You look for you know, yeah, right. any passwords. You look the, the dirty laundry. So, of yeah. course, you can do that manually through two or three terabytes of data with 20 analysts. Or you use something like Yahoo's NSFW framework, not safe for work neural network. And you just push all your data that you exfiltrated through that network. And on the other end, everything comes out that's adult material, images you don't want to see on corporate networks, the juicy stuff. So that's what I get really scared about because it means A, the attackers can scale up their attacks. They can speed them up and it gets easier to conduct those things. It doesn't need a data scientist if we already see the prototypes out there. I'm not trying to say, you know AI is going to hack the world but if we just take something like WannaCry which used one method to move laterally and had a kill switch and equipped it with 15 different methods to move laterally and make decisions on the fly, uncertainty learning of what the best method is and when to be quiet to move around, you could burn down most of the world today and static rules and signatures are not gonna help with that. So super um, interesting topic.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately a lot of platforms are still, they're they're still in that same mode I think is the the old school IDS is it's more uh, reactive than proactive. Uh, even with some of the more advanced systems, it it seems that, you know, a lot of it's reactive and and depends on certain conditions to be met. You you touched on one thing that that really interests me too is what really is consciousness, right? So a lot of people, you know, I've I've heard people talking about constructs and, you know, maybe the the level of uh, consciousness is is built into a construct. Um, There's all kinds of theories that are are really interesting about consciousness. and, And I think, Before we can have real true AI, we would have to understand, truly understand what consciousness is. Um, And there's some crazy theories out there as well when it comes to consciousness.
2: Just on a little side note, uh, this month's issue of Hoarded Hacker is all about AI and exactly that, Mike.
0: The difference between what is
2: consciousness, what is real AI. So look out tomorrow. (laughs)
1: That's cool. Sorry, shame shame (laughs) of (laughs) self-promotion. And And that's part of what drove me to Dark Trace, um, or any anything AI related, because um, it's fascinating, right? Um, I personally think, aside from if it's good or bad for cyber, I think anything people label as AI these days is still a mechanical trick. It is, you know, finite, it's finite. It's um, doing certain things, solving certain problems. But for true AI or general AI, we need to understand and replicate consciousness, and there's a great book called The Emperor's New Mind from Roger Penrose. I think somebody um, said Roger Penrose is the guy where Stephen Hawking went to when he had really hard math problems to solve. So, you know, and, and that's from the 80s or 90s, so a bit dated, but really interesting exploratory on about consciousness. And then, of course, not going too much on attention, but if we look around the world, um, you know, where does consciousness start? Where does it end? And I speak to the converted, and I know you folks know your stuff around this topic, but is it a binary thing? Is something conscious or not? When I look into the eyes of my dog, I know it's not as, maybe not as conscious as I am, but something looks back at me. But if I look at a small bird, that feels very different. And then there's, you know, if you look at something like an octopus, octopodi um, in the sea, I've learned that they have part of their conscious um, cognitive abilities in their arms. The, yeah. so there's a central part that controls those, but they have autonomy in the arms. I couldn't even imagine what that feels like, right? And then there's split brain experiments where somebody had an ax in their head and they have like two conscious bands. There's so much we don't understand is what, what I'm trying to get at, I guess. Um, but before yeah. we have done more research on these things, I don't think we are close to any true AI at all.
0: No, and and it's funny because when you look at, like, uh, neurology and and how the brain works, I mean, we really only know, like, 10% of how the brain works. Like, there are so many facets to the brain that we aren't even, we don't even know yet. Um, And there's so much research going on when it comes to, you know, exactly how thoughts are formed and and where, you know, where that cognitive uh, ability comes from. Um, and really, like you know, what we talked about before, as far as what is consciousness, you know, my consciousness, my reality may be different from the person sitting next to me. Um, what they're seeing may be completely different. Um, and a lot of stuff like you know, when your brain matrix—I think it's called matrix, matrices or, or matrix—like your your brain is expecting to see something, and it may not be that exact exact object. But the way your mind is trained to, to pick that up, it sees what it, what it thinks it sees, um, which may be completely different. So it's really fascinating to, to think about you know, consciousness and, and think about how, compu- how far computers and, and, and technology has come, uh, even since I was a kid. Um, you know, and just within the last 10, 15 years, I think we've made huge amounts of advancement uh, in technology. And it's just, it it amazes me to think about where it's going to go
1: from here. And just maybe one one more comment on this. I guess we're always biased as societies based on the zeitgeist. So if we look back at, you know, the um, late 1800s, early 1900s, I guess, everything, people thought they could create a person through mechanical tricks, just stitching together things with, you know, iron and (laughs) some levers and stuff later people thought magnetism is the thing and electricity can reanimate bodies frankenstein's monster and today we think about it to create consciousness but again who says that silicon is the way forward who who says we right who knows what people can talk about in 100 years because then um, genetic modification will be the next big thing Or who knows
0: i mean we're always already seeing like uh, you know medical devices that are helping people stay alive and and keeping people from having seizures and stuff like that. Um, I actually have a a pacemaker um, and and it's really interesting to, to look at even like the bioengineering and how we, how we deploy, uh, you know, bio devices to, to help people live Um, really interesting stuff. So why don't you tell me a little bit about, I I know that you have a background in triple C. So could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your your experience with triple C and, and, you know, where, where that came from?
1: Yeah, and um, for those who don't know, the CCC or Triple is the Chaos Computer Club, it's a um, German organization that is for computer enthusiasts, and we're very strong on the term hacker um, and trying to make it positive associated, a hacker being somebody, male, female, or whatever gender, who is enthusiastic about technology and use it in creative ways, so it's not about security. And when I was younger and still living in Germany, that was my go-to place in society, and it's decentralized normally, to find like-minded people. A lot of that is like the maker scene, Um, so you've got people with um, soldering irons and building small robots or coding their own open source software, but I think there's also security folks there, (laughs) but there's a strong interweaving to um, civil rights and um, being a good citizen in the sense of, you know, standing up for your rights, exposing privacy issues and stuff like that. So as an example, very topical this week, something that just burst open in Germany, there is a security researcher, a lady who found a security problem, a vulnerability in the Germany's biggest political party's application, which they used to go from house to house, to of data on. So you could see um, all the people's like political or personal data, let's put it this way, in that app, and she found that by investing two or three hours now she did responsible disclosure to the biggest political party in germany the cdu and they basically turned around and after some discussions they um put a photo to the police and you know classic thing try to prosecute her and that just That's burst terrible. open. it is terrible and the ccc um backed her up and said right as a result of this we as you know this very um Very well-known body in in Germany, also advising the government. We're not gonna um, report any further vulnerabilities to this political party because clearly they don't know shit about what they're doing. So the CCC, you know, um, is is very well-known in Germany to also influence technology roadmaps for the country and advice on topics around security. And this is just the latest where this bubbled up, and now of course the political party is peddling back and saying, "Oh, we're sorry, and this was you know fought and we didn't mean to," but. Yeah, it's out there in the open. It's terrible. But um, I had always really great experiences. It's a great collection of people. Um, and you get everything there, right? It's very free free spirit, uh, just getting together. We did crypto parties every Tuesday. I remember that when I lived in Germany. Where we just invited the public to come and join. And we educate them on how to secure their laptops, choose strong passwords, install password walls. Okay. Um, how do you encrypt your laptop if you have to, you know, not ransomware, but secure it and stuff like that just trying to create awareness. So yeah, it's, it's a really good organization, um, but not widely known outside Germany. Well, in hacker, hacker cycles, I guess they are, but not always. So yeah, I love the folks. I'm not an active member at the moment because I don't live in Germany, but only praise to say about those folks. Yeah,
0: it's a great group, really great group. So we're at the uh, top of the hour. Um, do you have any questions for us, for the Haunted Hacker group or, or what we do or in general?
1: I, I did have one, um, and I don't know if you've got any opinions on that. It's, it just bubbled up this week in the news, and I got quite engaged with it. I don't know if you folks have been following the discussion around NFTs, non-fungible tokens, or if you come across that term. Yep. It's, it's a way um, for the audience maybe to make a digital object unique and create ownership. So if you have a Counter-Strike skin, that's hard to resell. But with an NFT, you could personalize this and sell it on and get royalties, or if you create a digital artwork, neon Cat is a good example. Everybody can copy it, but you can be the owner of the original and can sell it. So it's a big thing now. And there have been some applications in cybersecurity where somebody, I think, put up um, their exploit for Quake as an NFT to sell it. And I just keep thinking about what the implications could be for our industry. Either on the offensive side, you know, you're a security researcher, you sell an exploit, and every time it's been used or passed on. You get royalties? I don't know. But I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could NFT um, big hacks or big exploits or something like the APT1 report about China from FireEye? And you can say, I own that very original copy. I would absolutely pay money to be able to do this. Or the original Stuxnet code, I'm the owner of it, right? I just, it's not been widely used in the industry. It's just coming, but I keep thinking around the application. So I don't know if you folks have any opinions. Sorry to, you know, just bump this on you but we'll be curious on your thoughts there
0: no that, that's fantastic so I, I do have a little bit of knowledge in nfts in, in and what i think is interesting about nft is you're actually claiming the ownership of a thought um, in some cases and to me that just that blows my mind um you know that 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 type of intellectual Property or that type of uh, responsibility, right? So let's say you do you do get an NFT, and let's say you you know you own some sort of code, right? And that code isn't meant to be malicious, but it turns out to be malicious. Do you hold that person responsible, or the people along the chain of the NFT? Um, so yeah, that that has so many different uh, viewpoints and, and you know different questions that could be spun off of it. Uh, but yeah, I, I find that super interesting. Um, you know we were actually thinking about you know making our own token um you know just not not nft but you know just for for like bitcoin you know our <laughs> own little hounded hacker token um but yeah that's that's a really interesting topic we could probably have an entire show off of just NFT, I think we should. the idea of yeah just the idea of nft but yeah i think it's a, i think it's both interesting and dangerous um, when it comes to what you put your your name on what you own um so yeah that definitely definitely good so
2: does does, does copyright then become an issue on that like if you own that and people are paying royalties does that then mess with the whole open source idea like can through that can you then decide who does and who doesn't get to use your nft idea or creation
1: like is is it does it work like that or not i sorry go on mike
0: no go ahead go ahead max
1: i i don't know fully um i think in most cases you're still okay to use it and but you there's only one copy and you can claim ownership for it but you can still copy that meme or that thought and um, use it or apply it or modify it but it's about like collecting artwork or collecting ideas and claiming that ownership however that's more from the art perspective and gifs and images and digital art and stuff like that um, i read that there is no problem or the bottom line of a big article i read this that there's some problem between Using an NFT for software and copyrights and a digital rights management, but I didn't dig into the details. So that actually
2: would be a great solution for for music and the the whole thing with music piracy and all this was, well, if piracy sort of thing. But you know the um, the the, tra- the tracing of royalties worldwide. That when I was in the industry, that was a big problem. Was the 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 tracking of this? So NFTs would probably be a really good solution for that. But I don't know if that's in play or not.
0: It's really interesting to think about how every time it gets passed off, you get royalties from it. You know that that's that's amazing. Um, you know, and with you know with responsibility, you know, at some point the government will get involved with NFTs. I'm sure uh, there'll be some kind of control or some kind of uh, measures put on NFTs. Uh, so you know, and you look at like uh, cryptocurrency as well, uh, and the volatility of of, of, uh, of that market. Um, and I, I can't help but think that government also uh, has some influence in the volatility of, of the cryptocurrency markets um, and then you have people like Elon Musk who, who dumps in tons of money and can make the market like snap in you know just 24 hours uh, so yeah I mean it's, it's all about influence and, and um, you know when it comes to NFTs I think it's, it's a great idea but in the same token it, it kind of Kind of gives me a little bit of fear for the future, you know. If you can, you know, NFT a <laughs> thought, you know, that yeah. At what point are your thoughts your own, you know?
1: Exactly. So. Yeah, but yeah, it's super interesting. But aside from that, I, I didn't have anything else really. I mean, there's so much we could discuss. Um, also like, uh, I'm not going to go into any new topics because you know we probably lose ourselves. And I know my wife is on here, and we probably want to go to bed soon. It's ten past twelve midnight here. Yeah. Um,
0: Max, it, it was a pleasure having you on. And it's great to talk to you again, friend. Like, you know, I think you should definitely come back. And if you wanted to help co-host, uh, you know, a couple uh, podcasts, absolutely, man, be totally down for it. Be great. So, uh, yeah, totally appreciate it. And, uh, you know, tell the wife hello and have a great weekend, man. And for the rest of you, I will see you uh, next Saturday, same time, same back channel. Uh and uh look for the magazine, the Haunted Hacker magazine to come out, but tomorrow, Ryan. Right?
2: Tomorrow, tomorrow's the day. Yep.
0: So you guys have a great weekend and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Max.
1: See you, Max. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye.
0: Bye.